Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. Our movie today is an especially important one in the development of Staff Picks. I will flat out say this is the first movie that came to my mind when I came up with the concept of this podcast. Um, just the idea of underrated movies, movies that deserve more love, movies that need a bigger audience. When I first sat down to do staff picks, I'm like, Drop Dead Gorgeous from 1999, one of the most underrated, vicious, biting, dark comedies I have ever seen in my life. It's so much better than anybody would ever expect it would be. And again, this was the basically the genesis of staff picks. So I'm very excited. We're finally doing the episode on it. Um, I have a special guest for you. Uh, for when I bring out a special movie like this, I have to bring out a special guest. Uh, my guest today, his name is Mike Bloom. He, You may know him if you listen to my other podcasts. You know that he does my SNL in review podcast. We do Survivor Historians together. Uh, we do so many projects together. He basically lives at my house at this point. So I wanted to bring someone who has a lot of chemistry with me, has a big background in comedy, and really is just fun to listen to. So podcaster, comedian, all-around fun guy, welcome to Staff Picks, Mike Bloom. I am thrilled to be the Loretta to your Annette Atkins, Mario. <laughs> and you do my hair so well, and you don't blow that much smoke in my face, so honestly, you're the best experience in town. Yeah, the good thing about Mike and I is we do like three podcasts together per week or something like that at this point. So we have a chemistry already. Some would say a sexual tension. I'm not sure if you'd go that far. Would you? Is that where we're going here? I mean, listen, I probably have sexual tension with every single person I podcast. But I think considering how many podcasts I do, I am quite podcast polygamous. <laughs> but, you know, my, my wife has agreed to serve in all my vices. I also love the fact that this was the first movie that came to mind when you when this idea came to fruition. And this is what, like, the 35th episode <laughs> of Staff Pick. So you picked out the piece of prime rib and said, ooh, I want to cook this up real good, and then just put it in your freezer for about a year, <laughs> and now you're finally popping it out. Okay, I just want to point out what good friends we are, Mike, that I have done 60 episodes of Staff Picks, and you think I've done 30. So thank you very much for supporting my podcast. Well, I wanted to be conservative with the number, as conservative as the town of Mount Rose, Minnesota. But you were just one of those hairy-legged, no-bra-wearing libbies in the big city of the 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 the, uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah that is the St. Paul uh, St. Paul combo. Okay, I do have a very serious story for why it lasted, why it was not the first episode of Staff Picks, Michael. If you'd like to hear it, I would love to hear it. Okay, this will actually make you feel bad, so it's very important that I put this in here. <laughs> yeah, please, make, please, just bring down my mood in the very beginning. It's gonna be, bring me to the dark places that uh, essentially this movie entirely lives in. So essentially, we're getting into character. Okay, so my whole life, I have been the underrated movie guy. That's what I do. I just kind of seek out all these movies, and I see like everything growing up. And there's always ones that stuck in my head as just being special. And Drop Dead Gorgeous is that one, probably the highest return value of like return on investment where you expect nothing going into it. And it was so much better than any movie I'd seen probably that era. And I just fell in love with it immediately. And um, we'll talk about what it's about in a bit, a little bit. Don't worry. We got plenty of time to get into that. But what happened was I saw this movie and it always stuck in my head that I was always recommending it to people. I was always hyping it to people. I'm like, if you want a comedy that's so much better than you think it's going to be, watch drop dead gorgeous. And I was so 
transfixed with this movie that I eventually became transfixed by the lady who wrote it. Now, do you know anything about her, Mike? So her name is, is it pronounced Lana or Lona? I think it's probably Lana. Okay, so Lana Williams, and she, so she is, and this will feed into the material from Drop Dead Gorgeous, I believe she is a former teen beauty queen herself mm -hmm. turned comedy writer, I believe actually in another connection to pageants, uh, she was in the, in my frame of research, she was in the Simpsons writer's room and actually played a character, a young beauty queen <laughs> named Amber Dempsey in a fourth season episode called Lisa the Beauty Queen. Uh, and then she kind of bumped up into this. She did a few pictures, none of which went over well. And I think she sort of has retreated back. Is that, am I charting that correctly? Yes, you were leading into my anecdote nicely. Thank you. That I became transfixed with this lady, Lana Williams, because she's kind of a recluse. And like you said, she she has a little bit of a resume. She was involved with The Simpsons. She was a writer on The Drew Carey Show. She was a, uh, uh, an, uh, a consultant on Roseanne, the original Roseanne show. And then she got this movie. This was her first movie as a screenwriter. And it's so good. And like just as a, com a comedy writer myself, this movie always stood out to me as someone who really knew their material. And I was so transfixed by Lana Williams that I'm like, I'm going to track her down and get her as a guest on Staff Picks. That was actually the goal for the first episode of Staff Picks. I want to get Lana Williams. I'm going to drag her out of wherever retirement or hole she's hidden herself in for 30 years. And I want to get her on the show. And she is impossible to track down. That's why, Michael, this is the 60th episode, because I waited a year and a half and I kept emailing her and trying to find her. I cannot contact Lana Williams. So you're my backup. Thank you. Yes, nothing screams more the comparison between uh, a you know a a, a Holly, former Hollywood writer uh, you know comedy to the comedy writer to the stars <laughs> and a straight white Jewish man <laughs> who has uh, never participated. Well, actually, we'll talk about my pageant uh, past later on, but who is by comparison only marginally known for talking about reality shows and doing extremely goofy things on podcasts. We really are, you know, two sides of the same coin, Miss Williams and I. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll, I'll back this up a little more and say I kept telling people this is probably the most requested episode of Staff Picks. I had people being throwing themselves at me left and right. I want to be your co-host, Drop Dead Gorgeous. And I'm like, I'm holding out for Lana Williams. I have to hold out for her because it's amazing. This is the only movie she ever really wrote, and then she just disappeared. And it's like, it's the greatest first only movie I've ever seen from a person. And, like, that's, that's the thing. I was just transfixed. I had to get her on the show, and everyone was throwing themselves at me. And after a year and a half, I eventually said, Mike Bloom's the funniest. Get on the show. We'll do justice to this amazing movie. So does that make you feel a little better? Absolutely, though you set up extremely high expectations. Uh, you know, I, I hope to not have a freak out. I just need to calm down, do my tap routine, and get into it. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's super interesting. I was reading up on BuzzFeed actually did a really interesting retrospective on this. I want to say three years ago. No, actually, it might have been might have been five, four or five, because it was in honor of the 15th anniversary. So I guess it was 2014. Just about the legacy. And not only do you have Lana Williams running the script, you have Michael Patrick Jan directing, who was a guy who did a lot of stuff with the state, the TV show, before getting into it. And he sort of was on a similar path. He did not go the whole J.D. Salinger light route that Lana Williams did. But after this bombed, he pretty much said, no, I'm not going to do movies anymore. Let me <laughs> stick to commercials and TV shows. So it's so interesting how the way that movies cycle, especially back then, this was something that, 
really tanked back in the day. And we can speculate as to why. Maybe the material was ahead of its time. Maybe the fact that it was a mockumentary that came out a week after the Blair Witch Project, which really changed <laughs> the game of the mockumentary format, really hurt it. I'm not entirely sure, but it's so interesting how, you know, uh, the Hollywood machine can really take two people in who are bright-eyed and optimistic as to their first cinematic outings and just chew them and spit them out uh, to, you know, basically settle for lower rungs on that ladder, fearing if they get too high, they'll fall off again. Yeah, um, that's the... Okay, to sum up this movie for people, this is one of the funniest movies I have ever seen in my life, and it's so vicious and so dark and black. And like Mike said, it's a first-time screenwriter... And a not only a first-time director, it's the only the movie he ever directed, right? Yeah, he went back to TV shortly after because he said, yep, movies are not for me. I guess whether it was, you know, the actual process, there was some stuff uh, in that BuzzFeed piece about how him and Williams actually butted heads a bit when it came to her really sticking by the way she wanted the script to be done, which was by the word, and him sort of making creative liberties with it, to the studio coming in and pulling a fast one on them by saying, oh, you know what, as a last-minute bid for international markets, can you cast this random Japanese pop star <laughs> in a role? Uh, which, if you uh, look at Molly and her over-the-top Asian parents, which I'm sure we'll get to, the sister is that random pop star that they shoehorned in there. <laughs> I, I think he was just probably soured on the entire experience and said, you know what, I had a lot more fun on TV. Let me go back to TV, though. To be fair, he did bring over Thomas Lennon from the States. There's at least a little holdover. He got to sort of keep one... Uh, one little dangle on his keychain from TV as he moved over to movies. Okay, I don't want to bury the lead too far because there's so much fun stuff in this movie, but I do have to mention the other elephant in the room. Now, you might not be aware of this one. You know Lana Williams did a second movie, and her experience on that one was even worse, and she actually yanked her name off the credits? Do you have you? Oh, yes. I remember my family and I uh, watched a lot of Friday night movies in my youth, and I do recall... One night, for some reason, my parents thought it'd be interesting to rent the movie Sugar and Spice, which, for those of you that don't know, involves a group of high school cheerleaders where one of them gets pregnant, I believe, and in order to, you know, afford the, the care that she needs, they decide to rob a bank. Now, again, that's another weird thing where the studio sort of bastardized the concept. I think she wanted a bit more dark. I believe it was the original title was Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatic Weapons or something mm -hmm. like that, but this was, you know— only a few years after Columbine, so this idea of Becky Lehman with a gun is probably the the most the studio would go in terms of giving teenagers firearms in the wake of that controversy. And so they really, I think, watered down the really dark concept she went to to the point where, like you said, she erased her name from that film and put a pseudonym in there, which I guess was the first time uh, writing credit for that person as well, considering they did not exist before that movie. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I've, I've seen Sugar and Spice. I actually own it. I don't think it's great, but I remember the first time I watched it, I'm like, this is Drop Dead Gorgeous. Like, whoever wrote this had to be this, because it's so similar. And, yeah, that is indeed, that's her, sad, I, I don't know if to say sad. I'm sure she had a very happy life, but her foray into Hollywood. Drop Dead Gorgeous was a massive flop, one of the biggest flops of its era. And then Sugar and Spice she hated so much, she, she yanked her name off it. So the, uh, the long-lost Lana Williams, I hope she listens to this one day, just so she knows how many people love this movie. Yeah, uh, assuming that she has Wi-Fi in her cave or log cabin or wherever she might be. I mean, speaking of, you know, her wiping her name from her next movie, it feels like the Internet has wiped this movie from its collective consciousness. I'm going to assume 
that you have it on DVD. And I really am imagining this voluminous Beauty and the Beast style uh, library of DVDs that you have. <laughs> but if you look for this on any streaming site, it is scrubbed clean really? from the internet. It is not there. Uh, you can find like daily motion links that uh, are actually in French, so none of the like actual documentary commentary subtitles will be will show up there and if they will they'll show up in french but yeah there are even petitions you know online to get it released some odd reason and i'm sure we can get into our collective histories with the movie i've only seen it on dvd and it appears that's the only way you can watch it not only that the dvds are all out of print what so you're yeah you're basically owning like a relic right now mario <laughs> that they call they cost like 70 dollars now because you basically have to just scrounge around and find someone who's willing to get rid of one I had no idea about any of that. That's fascinating. I, because again, anybody, everybody I talked to that knows comedy, loves this movie. This is like one of these universally beloved movies that any comedy fan, if you know about it, that they love, and it's impossible to find. I have, I cannot believe that. Though I guess it's sort of a thing, like, I don't know, word of mouth. Then it's, it's the, it's the only movie that even the dark web won't show. <laughs> wow. What's it got in there, you know? And and so maybe that just helps build the expectations and the mythos behind it more. Okay, well, I'm trying to think of this because, um, again, we're, we're delaying the actual entry into the movie here. But this movie is so dark and so tasteless. I think the greatest word, the greatest description I've ever heard of this is that it's a bad taste classic, which would probably describe it as well as anything else I can say. Like, there are some... You'll be slack-jawed at some of the bad taste in this movie, how far they go with some of these jokes. And it's amazing. Yeah, it's. I can maybe see why it not, might not be uh, universally released and beloved nowadays. Because, you know, in this era, in 2019, this is not a movie that would really fly. And you can say there's one or two things that wouldn't fly. No, there's about 15 things in this movie that wouldn't fly. It's like, again, one of the darkest movies ever. And like I said, it just... It doesn't really take sides. It just napalms every single person in the movie. It just napalms an entire section of the country, like, with no remorse. So maybe there's a reason it's not maybe, like, a beloved Universal classic. Quite literally. I mean, there are so many explosions in this. You'd think Michael Bay <laughs> was a ghost producer on Drop Dead Gorgeous. But, I mean, it's a good point, especially I want to talk about the concept of mockumentaries later on and what you think about it. But it's so interesting, you know. Two-time previous Staff Picks guest and all-around fantastic guy Vic Shetty and I last year did an entire career retrospective on the works of Christopher Guest, which are by and large mockumentaries. And it's so interesting to even compare the two because I'll say that's that's how I sort of found my way into this movie is because I was a big Christopher Guest fan when I was in college and I happened to have a friend who happened to have it on DVD. And it was at first I thought, okay, is this a Christopher Guest movie? You know, well, just like Blade Indiana. In uh, in waiting for Guffman, we're in this sort of like podunk middle in midwestern town, and then it turns much much darker <laughs> than any Christopher Guest thing. That's the thing is that Christopher Guest movies, as weird as they might be sometimes, a lot of them do contain these notes of optimism and happiness and positivity within at least some of the characters that is completely devoid <laughs> in this film. But that's what I love about it, and it really shows that the '90s was when, for some reason, filmmakers tried to prove how hardcore the Midwest was. <laughs> like, bet between this, I mean, one of the reasons why it flopped also is because they're saying, like, oh, look at this Fargo knockoff. You know, they cast, they cast you know, another Gunderson. Uh, you know, they're trying to make something edgy out of something that sounds so corny when it comes out of people's mouths. But 
that's a fantastic value out of it. Like you said, it's extremely dark material, but for some reason, when it's coming out of the oh yeah, you betcha <laughs> accents of all these, you know, denizens of Mount Rose, it becomes funnier and it doesn't become as twisted until you really think about it. I'd completely forgotten about the pedophile character. <laughs> the first you know, the first couple times I saw this movie, it was only when recently remembering, I'm like, oh my god, yeah. Not only was he there, they had a running joke of him constantly being teased by the appearance of young women throughout this film. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll delve into the movie here just because I'm dying to talk about it. But <laughs> That was the one gateway, by the way, was the mention of the pedophile character. Now we're finally introducing the movie. Yeah, the pedo kicks me in the butt. Now we have to actually start. But I will say, just a quick uh, my history of the movie, and we'll do your history of the movie, and I don't want to spend too much on this. But, yeah, this movie came out in 1999, and I have long said that is the best year for movies ever. There's like 30, 40 good movies, awesome movies that year, and this is one of them. But again, it was not a hit. I did not see it in the theater. I don't know a single person who saw it in the theater. And there's a lot of theories why a movie like this would have flopped. Um, we don't have to spend a lot of time, Mike, because I can tell you exactly why this movie flopped. It's a comedy about beauty pageant starring Kirstie Alley and Denise Richards. And that's how it's billed. Tell me the market for that. Charlie Sheen. <laughs> that's it yeah Kirstie Alley had done like nothing she'd done nothing in Hollywood she was off Cheers and she did like a lover boy or not lover boy the one with uh damn it now I forgot it Madhouse the one with John Larroquette well, well no, I'm trying to remember it. We, we're a couple of years into Veronica's closet though depending on how how much you skew on the must see TV popularity yeah. scale now, with that. now who was watching that come on I was <laughs> were you like four yeah, I mean, look, I was eight years old. I didn't understand a lot of the jokes, but I was watching must-see TV between Veronica's Closet, Just Shoot Me, Friends was really in its heyday, Seinfeld had just ended, and I had no idea why the ending meant what it did because I hadn't seen the first part of Seinfeld. I mean, it was the glory days, and I was trying to digest as much information as I could with my very youthful brain. Okay, yeah, but she was hardly known as a movie star. Kirstie Alley was not leading movies back then. Denise Richards was mostly known as that girl who smiled with a big fake smile in Starship Troopers. And, like, they're the two leads of your movie. And, like, it's a first-time screenwriter. The commercials look stupid. It's like a, a movie. It, like, looked like, I mean, like a really silly little, like, teenage girl comedy. That's what it looks like. And that's nowhere near what it is in, the, in reality. But that's why it flopped. It's not that hard to understand. And I will say that it took me about a year to finally, maybe even longer, I eventually saw it around 2001, 2002. I was just in a video store one day, and I grabbed it. I'm like, well, maybe this could be kind of fun. And I'm like, wow, was I sleeping on that movie. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's also one of those ones where after the fact, you look back on the cast, and you're like, oh, my God, how did they get this many talented people in one room? I mean, this is the film debut of a five-time Oscar nominee Amy Adams, yeah. who – she happened to be a good amount of these people, just like Waiting for Guffman, were local hires in order to really get that Midwestern feel to it. Surprisingly, people might be stunned to hear this. Amy Adams was one of those local hires. Yeah. She was working in a dinner theater in Minnesota and happened to go out, and then the rest was, was history. So it's crazy that you have her, that you have Kirsten Dunst, who had just come off of the like Jumanji wave and was now obviously going on to – this is basically her weird project between Jumanji and the Spider-Man trilogy – uh, between those commercial successes, she sort of delved deeper into this, which I think will inform some of her choices later on in her career. You have the 
sublime Brittany Murphy. Of course, you have Allison Janney. You have Ellen Barkin. There's just so many fantastic people in this. But if you look at it as a time capsule back in the day, nobody knew who the hell those people were. So those, while those may have been names that drawn now, they definitely were not nearly 30 years yeah, ago. God. I always have a story about that too, that I first saw this movie and I'm like, every single character in this movie is fantastic. Every actress is perfect for the role they play. And I'm like, you know what actress I like? That Leslie Miller, the girl who played the slutty Leslie Miller, she made that character so much more likable and charismatic than she should have been. And so for years, I was like, who is that actress? And I kept an eye on her, and she became Amy Adams, like you said. Mario, what's this movie about? All right. <laughs> well, now it's about 20 minutes long. That's how long we have. Yeah, All right. Exactly. Okay, we'll go into it. So the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous is a mockumentary. It's a story of a fictional beauty pageant that takes place in the town of Mount Rose, Minnesota in 1995. And uh, it's clearly written by somebody who grew up in a small town in Minnesota because there are many, 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 many wonderful little small town, or little nasty small town de details in here. And I think that should set the tone, right, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess on that note, I want to go to this concept of mockumentary because like I mentioned before, it's something my mind has heavily been embroiled in it's been like a St. Paul's pork product just <laughs> sitting in its juices for the past year or so. And I know that you're a huge fan of most of The Office's <laughs> tenure in the United States. Do you have any thoughts towards this concept of the mockumentary, especially when it's used as a comedic device? Um, just my short answer is I haven't really seen too many bad variants of it. Like, it's almost always funny if they pull it off correctly. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, I really enjoy it as movies i didn't i had again sort of came into it uh, with a sort of shelter perspective from a cinematic perspective with basically checking out all the christopher guest stuff i didn't realize that you know there would be things like this or like i'm trying to remember the uh the mockumentary that's done about uh nicole kidman as like a, a serial killer with ice skating i can't remember the that's, name of it now uh never mind. i was gonna say serial mom that's not it that's kathleen turner yeah, and I, I'll, the name's uh, evading me, but hopefully I'll uh, get back to it soon. But yeah, and then when it makes its way over to TV, I feel like then it becomes a bit more touchy. It works as a really interesting narrative device because you can use it, use it for irony. You can have character doing something, cut to talking head. They meant the exact opposite thing. Uh, you could use it to just put out one-liners without necessarily needing to have a scene partner. And that's what really, I think, made The Office so successful, at least in its initial days. But then you get into weird circumstances like Parks and Recreation, which I love, and Modern Family, which is okay, at least in its initial days, where they sort of just completely dissolve the reality that there is a crew filming this. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of like, hey, we'll use this convention, but not actually acknowledge the fact that there is a crew filming this for whatever strange reason. At least The Office, you know, Steve Carell had that throwaway line in his goodbye episode of like, hey guys, let me know when this actually airs, okay? And then of course they decided to set up that whole plot line in the ninth season that we definitely won't talk about. Uh, but at least they were trying to go down that route of going back to the reality of it all. And it seems like, you know, uh, the other, I guess the most recent example is a series that I personally haven't seen yet, but it's definitely on my list. It's a Netflix series called American Vandal. Mm -hmm. which has done in the vein of a lot of these true crime series, but is done as a mockumentary. So it might be on the comeback, but I really do feel like it was super popular in the 80s and 90s 
sort of went away in like the early 2010s, but now it might be coming back. Now we're sort of reopening that uh, now that it sort of has some time to rest. All right. Should we talk about the plot again? <laughs> yes, let's talk. So there's this beauty pageant called the Mount Rose American Tea Princess Pageant, and basically uh, it highlights all of the competitors and the people in Mount Rose who surround it, whether it be uh, your the people behind the scenes who work on it, whether it be the parents of the contestants, whether it be the judges of questionable character. Uh, but there is a bit of a thread running through with as they prepare for this competition girls keep mysteriously either getting killed off or suffering strange accidents. And while the cops are quick to chalk it up to random bouts of, you know, bad execution or bad craftsmanship, <laughs> the one and only Amber Atkins as delightfully played by Kirsten Dunst believes that she is being targeted. And so it basically combines the cutthroat world of team beauty pageants with the literal cutthroat world of murder. <laughs> All right, let's introduce our main characters here. We're not going to give away too many of the jokes. That, again, this movie is just chock full of little one-liners and random quips and stuff. And I'm, I'm going to try not to focus on too many of them, but we'll do our ma major characters here. Our uh, lead character in the movie, her name is Gladys Lehman, played by Kirstie Alley, who is a... Uh, how would you describe Gladys Lehman to our, our, our newbie listeners, Mike? Bitch is crazy. <laughs> yes, the, bitch is crazy. She is the... The richest family in town, her and husband, her and her husband, they own the Lehman Furniture. They basically run the town. There's a line at some point in the movie that says, anytime one of them takes a shit, it's front page news. So it's basically their town. And she's the one running the beauty pageant. And her daughter, Becky, played by Denise Richards, is in the pageant. And this is the year that Becky will become coronated as Miss Mount Rose. Yeah, and basically... There's sort of a running subplot where it gets revealed at the end that all those machinations that I was talking about, Amber was not being paranoid. Gladys was arranging to have her literally killed. You know, she does blow up one of her main competitors right in the beginning of the movie. And that's really a fantastic game changer within the first like 15 minutes is when you see a teenager get blown up on a thrasher as it goes over a pristine hill. You know you are in for a bumpy ride and not just because of the explosion from the thrasher. But she is – it's so interesting how she starts off so matter-of-fact. You know, she's introducing – she's the head of what? The this, this Civil Servettes, I believe is the name of the group, where mm -hmm. uh, Miss uh, Mindy Sterling, Frau from Austin Powers herself in a much tamer role volume-wise. Uh, but they are, you know, heading up the pageant. And so she seems much more introductory, much more welcome. But you can tell, especially when one of the people even vocalizes that it's going to come down to Becky and a character we're soon going to be talking about, Amber Atkins, she gets a bit snippier and it finally culminates in this rage spiral when her <laughs> her baby gets eaten by the swan. No, no, no. They're too, jumping way too far ahead. Save the swan talk. All right. I'll save the swan. I'll, I'll leave it an egg for now. But <laughs> yeah, another fun thing I found out, maybe not so fun, but I believe Kirstie Alley was fully into the Scientology at this point. Uh, and I believe, according to Lana Williams, she said that they uh, she didn't come to do any costume fittings. They had to ship all the costumes to the Los Angeles Scientology Center and she would try on costumes there. And apparently, even though I think she does a fantastic job at really becoming unhinged, and just a truly fantastic villain in this movie. Uh, Lana was not pleased with her performance. She thought she was she was not funny at all. But it might be tainted by the fact that like she just did not know the script. <laughs> so she was very much flying by the seat of those culottes that she made for herself. So wait, Kirstie Alley was just improvising this whole movie? So that's basically her in the movie? 
<laughs> no, I mean, she, I think she learned it. But, you know, there's a difference between, like, really preparing and going beforehand and being like, all right, what's today's lines? Let me learn them a bit beforehand. And I'll sort of walk in and be like, yeah, what's going on in this scene? <laughs> okay. Well, she is the main – I mean, she is the biggest name in the cast. It would see – maybe – I would understand she'd pull a little diva trip here. But let's let's not skip over Mindy Sterling here. I just want to mention her real quick. Uh, there's a lot of great side characters in this movie. That's one of the great things about Drop Dead Gorgeous that – I'd have a hard time picking my favorite three side characters in this movie. That's how rich it is. But the most underrated has got to be Mindy Sterling as the side as Gladys' little sidekick, Iris. Yeah, it's only because I the do love it. Yeah, it's only because the more times you watch it, the more you realize how many funny lines she has that you didn't even realize that was her. Yeah, I mean, she's the one who, from the very beginning, talks about how what's sick is woman dressing up like men. And she really does seem like Gladys' yes woman. She's really yes-anding all the proselytizing that Gladys is doing throughout this film. So right off the bat, we're in this tiny little town, Mount Rose, Minnesota, population 5,000, which screenwriter Lana Williams, based on her own hometown of Rosemount, she just inverted the word, which I always love that little trivia. <laughs> no, one, no one will ever know. <laughs> yeah. And so this is basically based on her, all her realities of growing up in a small town and doing beauty pageants. And right from the start, Gladys Lehman tells us that Mount Rose is a little different than other towns. And here's the exact quote I got to use. We're cleaner here. We're more wholesome. We're God-fearing. There's no back room in our video store, unlike the big sin cities, a.k.a. Minneapolis-St. Paul. I mean, I've been to Minneapolis-St. Paul. My God, the nickel and dime whores you can find just <laughs> gallivanting on every street. I mean, they're wearing parkas because it's always negative 20 there, but... It lets your imaginations run wild. Truly a place for this, the seedy underbelly of the permafrost that graces the northern United States. <laughs> this is the only movie I can guarantee that compares one of the most wholesome cities in America, Minneapolis, to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> so. and it's, also, it's also super interesting that after they do that, they cut to like this montage of introducing Mount Rose and... I mean, it's 1999, so the soundtrack makes sense, but it's very, like, grungy rock, mm -hmm. which completely goes against the, oh, yeah, we're all God-fearing folk. Like, I mean, th there is a man that they put the fear of God in when they nearly run over a priest. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let me talk about that one. Um, One of the big heavy jokes in this movie is all the Lutheran jokes, that everybody in this town is Lutheran. There's a Lutheran gun club. You have a sign for the oldest goddamn Lutheran, Frida, as you er, enter the town. I will say my mom was Lutheran, Mike, and there's one line in this movie that she, to her dying day, said was the funniest line she had ever heard in a movie. And it's Is it that they use grape Kool-Aid instead of wine for the blood of Christ? That's the one right there. I For people who don't know this movie, the Lutherans are driving to the mall to pick up some costumes for the pageant, and they almost run over the town priest who is drunk and wandering through the streets, the Catholic priest. Kirstie Alley says... Well, you can't blame him. The communal wine just proves too tempting for some of them. And here's this where Iris pops in, who's always got the best line in every scene. You don't realize it till you watch it. She's like, that's why we Lutherans use grape Kool-Aid for the blood of Christ. So apparently, I'm, 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 I'm Luther, as my Lutheran mom would say, that's the funniest line in movie history because only a Lutheran would have written that. And I think that, you know, Lutherans stand a better chance of uh, avoiding inebriation, but also receiving diabetes. So I guess it's sort of like six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. Yeah, you betcha. Yeah, I mean, and actually, 
you know, what you uh, suppose for Kirstie Alley, it's actually true for Mindy Sterling. She said that because she had some experience with the Groundlings, the director actually let her improvise ah. a bit more. So perhaps that line was improvised. I'm not entirely sure, but she had a bit more room to play around. And maybe that's to your point about how she has some of the best. One of the things about mockumentaries that are so tough is to find that scene capper right at the very end. And it, it almost always goes to Iris. You know, when they, there's a moment later on where one of the characters compares this to Nazi Germany and storms <laughs> off, but it doesn't end on that. It ends on Iris going, well, I don't know what the hell got into her. Yeah. So that's my personal tip for anybody who's seen this movie a bunch of times, watch it again and just pay attention to Iris, how funny she is. Yeah. And also just remember that I believe this is the same year that Austin Powers international man and mystery came out as well. So just imagine that this was <laughs> the year of Mindy Sterling. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, meet the other girls in the pageant here. We've already talked about Becky Lehman. That's Dennis, uh, Denise Richards, the daughter of the richest woman in town, Gladys. Uh, Becky is a, you know, if, if you said her that bitch crazy about her mom, the daughter is double that, double bitchy and double crazy. But what I love about it is as much as Gladys tries to really present herself, especially to the camera, as like, I'm the infomercial host. I'm using my soft lilt because that's what I've been taught to do to introduce this. Becky is almost like a robot, <laughs> considering that her mom has probably conditioned her for years where, you know, the first line that she says is she walks to camera and goes, is this my mark? Mm -hmm. Like she is someone who will always poise facing towards the camera, is always checking on herself to make sure she's beautiful at all times. And all the lines that she delivers, not only to the judges, but to the camera are so pre-scripted, pre-approved, typical, uh, typical, you know, pageanty answers that when her talent comes later on one of the reasons why it's so glorious is because it comes as such a shock that such a well put together character <laughs> externally would have just such horrible decision decision making skills to think that this is a tasteful option <laughs> well okay i do have to say a little bit of in defense of the casting here like i said nobody was going to go see a denise richards movie because that was her reputation and from starship troopers and what people knew her as is she's very robotic very poised, not an especially good actress, just kind of goes through the motions and looks, you know, overly prepared. So maybe that was an especially good choice to cast her as Becky Lehman here. Now, I believe also this might have been the year of Denise Richards, too, because I believe this is the year she was a Bond girl, right? Wasn't she in The World Is Not Enough that year? Oh, it couldn't have been the same year, was it? I'm pretty sure it was the same year. Was it was in? Wasn't she? She was Christmas something, right? Because that was where the stupid Christmas comes early line came from. Doctor Christmas Jones, who I believe was a nuclear physicist, who is you know this perfect cat. Exactly when I look at Denise Richards, I think nuclear physicist. Yes, yeah, so you say I trust you with the codes. <laughs> yeah. So, but I will say Denise or uh, uh, Becky Lehman has a lot of the best lines in the movie, and I will give you the honor in this one. When we learn her off the bat, she has a motto that her mother has taught her. And when, her, when she was young, her daughter, her mom, gave her a 9 mil gun for her birthday. And what was the wisdom she gave her daughter? I believe it was like, Jesus only likes winners or something like that. Jesus loves winners. <laughs> oh, boy. And that's and that's why when she aims, uh, she always aims to win. All right. So let's, let's run through the other girls in the contest here. We have Leslie Miller, played by Amy Adams, who is the... For the, uh, I'll say this politely, she's the town mattress. Everybody gets a turn on her at some point, but no. she's very sweet. I mean, you would think that, but she does hold one partner throughout. Well, for a week. He is such a, he's such an interesting character as well, because he is so, he completes the circle of masculinity 
where he is so overtly masculine, it becomes homoerotic <laughs> to certain points, to the point where when she comes in third place, he stands up and kisses the boy next to him. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting things going on, but I think to your point that you made earlier, one of the things that makes Leslie, you know, really, uh, I don't say rootable, because guys have rooted with her a lot, but, uh, you know, in terms of a, a more likable character is the fact that she really does play it with such naivete. Mm-hmm. Even though she does sleep around, she seems like someone who means well and is a bit ditzy. And she seems legitimately happy with whatever she might be doing. And that helps instead of just someone who's like, yeah, I sleep around. I'm skanking. I know it. Uh, she has she has a certain, I don't know, effervescence to her because she's only 17. I think Minnesota nice is the exact term people use. Mm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Although I will say it's very awkward when her opening scene is her audition video for the pageant, which is her openly having sex with her boyfriend on the grass. It shows that she's flexible. And look, <laughs> I had forgotten that Amy Adams had a musical theater background. She was... There were a lot of people to look at during that stepladder routine, as John Doe can suffice it to say. But Amy Adams, I think, some has probably some of the best moves there. Her <laughs> extension was crazy. Okay, well, I was going to talk about her in a little different way. And then I was saying, one of the things when you've seen this movie like 40, 50 times, like I have, watch Amy Adams in the background of any scene when the girls are parading around. She always has like 10% more wiggle than anybody else in the pageant. Like she's trying to seduce every single person in the audience at all times. Just I'll do one, one of those little details I always liked about her. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the small character moments that she brings. She did go into the sh- movie saying, like, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's completely the opposite of who I am. <laughs> but she brought some elements of herself into the character, which made it really fantastic. And her relationship with this guy throughout the movie is just such an enigma that it has really confounded me the past couple times I've watched this movie. <laughs> the the unanswered questions that Drop Dead Gorgeous lead brings in your head. Well, because, like, there's one point where she comes in third and they have this thing, they have this uh, little confessional outside the school where she's like, I did it, I, I'm second runner-up, I came in second, and he walks by, he's like, third. Like, he was so pumped when she was second runner-up <laughs> beforehand, why is he mad now? Did he also realize what second runner-up went? You know, did did she reveal that she had, did she reveal her two-month pregnancy to him? <laughs> I don't know. I think we need a documentary about her, specifically because of the fact that she also disappeared after the making of this movie. So this could be another making a murderer type of thing. Okay, I'm going to run down the rest of the girls in the pageant. Just jump in if you have anything to say. We have uh, Amber Atkins, who is played by Kirsten Dunst, who will be the hero of the movie. Uh, What's the nicest way to describe her? Kind of white trashy? Uh, She's white trashy, but with a heart of gold. Yes. Like, she means so well. And she has a couple times where she's snippy. You know, she gets into a, a flat-out hair-pulling cat fight with Becky at one point during the pageant. But otherwise, she means super well. And it's it's one of those representations of how, like, money corrupts in that Becky Lehman's part of the richest family in town, and she really has no soul. And Amber Atkins basically comes from nothing, but it's taught her to really appreciate things and work hard. She works two jobs. One of them is doing hair and makeup for the dead in a funeral home, which I think is the microcosm representation of how dark this movie is if you get a chuckle out of the concept of somebody tap dancing around uh you know around a morgue while doing hair and makeup on a cadaver i think that shows your taste towards the movie but i mean i she is super feisty and kirsten dunn's i think is a severely underrated actor especially when her lock got thrown in with oh she's just in a bunch of superhero movies i don't know if you ever saw like the second season of the fargo television show but God, is she just fantastic. So I'm happy 
that she was able to shine in more ways than one here. Well, I also point out there's another awesome 1999 movie she was in, a comedy, which you have not mentioned yet, which is Dick. Mm, oh, oh my god, yes! I watched Dick, yeah, a couple of years ago, and it is so... It's just such an insane topic, but it's so, so funny. I mean, I did not go through Watergate personally, so I'm assuming there are some things that went over my head or would be more appreciated by someone who did, but I I love the crazy concept of it, and again, she's just so endearing in that. All right, so we have Amber, and we have Becky, we have Leslie, and these are the big three main characters, but now we've got all the little side characters, and I will not name them all. I'll just kind of name them in passing here. Lisa Swenson, played by the wonderfully giggly and snorty Brittany Murphy. Oh, I love, I mean, it's so, it's when you watch these and like this and Clueless and even watch King of the Hill, God, it's so sad that we lost Brittany Murphy so early on because she is just such, she's, I'll use the term unironically, Mario, she's adorable. She is. She is someone is who is so dweeby. And weird, though she's not a total fry like some of those other girls. She is just so awkwardly endearing. It's absolutely fantastic. Let's see. We have Tess, the chunky girl who has a fetish for dogs. But they use fetish is, a, is such a weird way. She enjoys dogs to the point where uh, she got bitten by one, but she's totally fine because uh, she got some b- butt skin on her belly to, to patch over the bite. Okay, well, I was just trying to lead up to Molly Howard, who's the one I really wanted to talk about. Oh, my god. Yeah, goodness. because we have not really... You think we've been talking about how this movie's offensive and stuff. We haven't really gotten into anything that's actually offensive yet. Now we go to Molly Howard, and I have to just uh, give the quick overview of her. Her parents are Japanese, and they have adopted a white daughter because they want to... That's how they're going to acclimate into America, and they are putting her in the pageant because it's all-American. They want her to be the all-American girl. And they have the most, what would be the right word, the cringiest Japanese accents you've ever heard as they try to talk about how American they are? I would say the cringiest Japanese accents for actual people of Asian descent. (laughs) You know, you still have your Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's at the very end of that sliding scale, Mm -hmm. but it's very over the top. It's very, again, going back to King of the Hill, it's very, uh, you know... uh, Khan and uh you know the the family the vietnamese family that moves in next door who initially try to act all big in texas you know the mm-hmm. mom has her hair blown out and i thought i recognized the dad at first and it took me a little while but it is richard narita who ironically enough played opposite another pretty bad asian stereotype have you ever seen murder by death mario i never have i've heard about it though you well, I think on this note of parody movies, I recently watched it a couple of years ago, and you would love it. It's a it's a stupid send off of all the Miss Marple, Sherlock Holmes, uh, you know, uh, all Columbo, all of those tried and true detective tropes. And he plays the son of someone who does a I think it's it might be Peter no it's not Peter Falk uh, who does a very stereotypical Asian accent as an Asian character. Uh, so it's so, so interesting. Maybe he co-opted those mannerisms when he moved into this character. <laughs> okay, yeah. So they're the, the the Japanese characters who have the little white daughter, and they're trying to understand American customs through their daughter. And there's some fun lines here. I'm not going to repeat when they're yelling at their other Japanese daughter. But yeah, well, let's let's also can we put in a blanket here and just say this movie uses the term retard a lot. 
And perhaps we might use it as a quote sometimes, like when the dad yells at his daughter, speak English, you stupid retard. We are not condoning the term wait, wait, whatsoever. Wait. It was... You're speaking for my show here. I totally condone that, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. We completely, Mario lands and completely condones it. I am separating myself. I'm leaving Mario on an island now. Uh, but it was a sign of the times and, again, a sign of just how podunk and conservative and God-fearing this town is that they use the term retard to refer to one character so flippantly and so out in the open that everyone basically just calls him the retard at this point how dare you try to class my show up mike bloom yeah where you're all ass no class mario <laughs> you're the you're really the leslie of movie podcasts i will say that the japanese parents with the white daughter leads to one of my favorite subtle horrible jokes in the movie and it comes up in the during the pageant when all the girls have to wear something on their head that represents what they think makes america yes! yeah so this girl who's been raised by japanese parents thinks that the number one thing that represents america is the nuclear bomb that has been dropped on Hiroshima. yeah and she basically goes like this is what makes me molly an asian american it's just the irony <laughs> twists in so many fun ways oh my god okay and that's not even in the top 20 most vicious jokes in this movie all right, let's go through the other people here. We got uh, Janelle Betts, who's the uh, sign language girl. She's got a little deaf brother, right? Uh, no, she doesn't. Well, she so her she's about to have a little deaf nephew or niece, which causes no, her to... No, you're wrong. She has a deaf brother. They say it right at the start. Oh, did she? I didn't even... I, I, I thought she was going out for the deaf baby, and that's the only deaf member of her family. No, she already has a brother, and that's why she's... Well, I'll use the word fetish again. She's got the sign language fetish. You're really like you really irritate. You're in the John Doe territory right now, Mario. Like, what are these teenage girls into? Let's find well, out. Well, you try. See, you're trying to class the show up. I'm gonna drag it right back down into the mud. There you go. I'm gonna gallant it, and you're goofing all over the place, Mario. Oh, there's some great joke. Okay, this is the girl. She's got the deaf brother, and she does her talent as sign language. She's gonna do an interpretive dance in sign language. And one of my favorite, another little favorite subtle joke in this movie, and this is one that my wife had to point out to me, is that when. Janelle is speaking in sign language. She knows sign language real, real well, but there's some words she doesn't know what they mean. She doesn't know how to say it in sign language. So she stops and she spells it out letter by letter. Yeah. It always makes me laugh. She does it twice in the movie. It's really fun. So I guess one of my connections with this movie is that this was a, one of the movies that my wife and her mother, my mother-in-law, just had on loop nonstop while she was growing up to the point where when we were watching this the other night in preparation for this podcast, there were a couple lines that she just suddenly remembered almost like wrote like gray matter in her brain and just sort of spit out. But my mother-in-law actually studied ASL at school. And so she really appreciated that as well about how some things, yeah, she'll stop and spell out. There's sometimes when she'll sign out things like world that are just nonsensical sign language. And of course it's added on to the fact that she's doing an interpretive dance all this is going on so you don't know if it's an arm moving to sign something or if it's moving into a nice tondu as she sings to herself <laughs> okay and the, the the main star here and this is the biggest girl in pageant the the main girl in school miss popular her name is tammy curry and this is one if you haven't seen the while you, you the movie in a while you might have kind of forgotten about her that she's like the president of the lutheran sister of gun club uh she's a jock she's popular and she's the one that's expected to win the pageant and this is where the movie, like you said, takes a real dark turn right at the start, where two minutes after meeting Tammy, she is blown up on a thresher. <laughs> it's so interesting the way that this movie is plotted out, because all this, all these threats happen just in the course of the first half of the movie, and it really comes 
Fast and Furious. You know, they, they take some time introducing these characters, but then this first big event happens. Then they introduce some more characters, then a second big event happens. You know, uh, I know we cannot get into the mind of Lana Williams because she's in a bunker somewhere <laughs> at this point, but it would be interesting to sort of understand where the plotting elements came into the picture because it's also interesting how we can definitely talk about the ending later on and how deliciously dark it was but it's interesting how you would think the pageant would be the big closer of the film because that's the big climax but there's a good amount of rising action and a lot of falling action from it as well it's very unconventional in that regard yeah that's i only have one gripe with this movie and that it's about 15 20 minutes too long it ends after it should that's the problem what would you want it to end after the swan incident or after the the puke incident at the uh, at states i would personally end it after the swan incident when she becomes the winner by default because of the death I, I could understand that at the same time i think and we can certainly talk about it when it comes to these states and the nationals of it all i think that is sort of uh lana williams saying like okay one for you audience one for me <laughs> i think this is her final shot at this system that she grew up in by you know having it uh end up being completely, you know, essentially the rose-colored glasses falling off of Amber's face as soon as she leaves Mount Rose, and then especially her going to nationals and the big company getting shut down and everyone going ape shit. <laughs> I think is a an interesting way from a thematic perspective to end things. So to your point, I think from a plotting perspective, it is interesting that we just have a bunch of codas essentially after that big ending in Gladys's tirade. Okay, so let's. We've met all the girls in the pageant, and we've killed Tammy Curry, who was supposed to be the favorite. She was the one that's supposed to win, and with her out of the way, uh, it's basically Becky's game to lose here. We're going to meet a fantastic side character here, and because Mike wants to class up this podcast, he may not be super comfortable discussing her. Mike, let's talk about Mary Johansson, who won last year. Yes, so <laughs> poor Mary Johansson, uh, you know, she... Really worked hard. She did all this stuff on only four four hundred calories last year, and I guess bad habits die hard uh, because she ends up in the anorexia, hospitalized for anorexia. I do love how the Mount Rose Hospital has a signpost that has the an eating disorder wing like emphasized on there. How weird is your town that you have to say like, "Yep, you got that." Like it almost came in order, like emergencies, you know, burn ward, and then. <laughs> eating disorders that's the top three on the family feud of what maladies plague the denizens of mount rose the most yeah again you talk about a joke that wouldn't fly in a movie the the winner of last year's pageant is a straight-up anorexic not only that she is in the anorexia ward of the hospital not only that but she is on her deathbed that she is basically going to die and they think we interview her throughout the movie her hair falls out in clumps she's got this dippy little look on her face and like I said, the first time I watched this movie, I'm like, my God, I cannot believe they put that character in this movie. And they went for those jokes. And all, not only do they go for those jokes, they will repeatedly go for those jokes. Like, Mary is one of my favorite characters in this movie. She's all over it. And I just love the the breathless way she has when she talks. Like, she's literally dying. And, like, <sighs> she's on oxygen, and she can't catch her breath. And she's got the stupidest little look on her face. And I got to say, the girl who plays her, I think her name is... Uh, Alexandra Holden. She's also in Sugar and Spice. And Alana Williams used her again in Sugar and Spice too. She plays a much different character in this in that one, but I, I just love her in this. Oh, she's so so good. Again, it's her 
smile that I think help endears the audience to the fact that they really are lampooning a very serious eating disorder. Of course, there are some hilarious things that really pit Becky and Amber against each other when Becky comes in to do like a, a photo op, basically like, oh my goodness, I didn't know you were here. I'm just visiting my old friend Mary and p- brings her a box of like Russell Stover chocolates. Uh, just that line, you know, uh, she's skinny Amber, not deaf. But I think by far my favorite part, and again, another microcosm of just how daft and daffy this movie is, is when she does a reprise performance <laughs> of her winning talent last year. Save that when we get to it. We got we got to talk we'll about it. that. Well, that's, that's another swan egg that we'll look forward to hatching later. That on. is my personal favorite scene in the movie, so we will give that one the due attention it Ooh. deserves. <laughs> so we've met Mary, last year's winner, and now we're going to meet all the other people. We're going to Amber's house, meet Amber. Amber, of course, lives in a trailer park with her white trash mother, played by Ellen Barkin, and their friend, Loretta, who... Some would say is the one who steals this movie, played by Alice and Janney. Yes, and it's like one of the first movies I remember Alice and Janney being in. Although, if I recall, she was in the Howard Stern movie Private Parts. And I remember her stealing those scenes, and then she steals this movie, and she's been stealing like everything she's been in ever since. I mean, she should be in prison at this point, is what you're saying. Yes, for theft and for lots of things she does in this movie. <laughs> I I mean she's just fantastic. I mean Allison Janney, I'm so happy she won an Oscar last year just because it's criminally overdue just how damn good of an actress she is to the point where you would think that Annette would be sort of like one of the main female characters, but I would say Loretta overtakes her yeah. in both memorability and the lines that she has. I love how promiscuous she is. I love how matter of fact she is. She has that fantastic exchange later that's one of the most quoted exchanges of the movie where she says you know you're a good person and good things happen to good people and amber says is that true she goes no sweetie it's pure bullshit you're just lucky as hell so you might as well enjoy it (laughs) i just love how simultaneously down to earth but she's also a bit daffy as well she'll spend her time at the airport hojo betting (laughs) the bartender she's her own brand of wacky but she's almost like a a realistic type of wacky if that makes sense (laughs) I like one of the uh, the one of the running jokes in this movie is that every time one of the denizens of the white trashier area of town sees the video cameras, they think they're on cops because oh, I yeah, love that. they've ostensibly been on cops before, so they're used to this. And then the fantastic capper at the end when it turns out that the cops crew is there. Yeah. It's just, oh, mwah, that is comedy gold. Yeah, so we meet the Atkins family, which is the white trash section of town. Then we go and meet the Lehman family, which is Becky and Gladys. Blah, blah, blah. The rich family against the poor family. Although, I got to give a quick shout out to the dad, Lester Lehman. Oh, yeah. Again, you're just naming all these awesome side characters that, that steal this movie. The dad, who's married to Becky Lehman, or who's married to Gladys Lehman, owns a furniture store, is the most racist person I think I've ever seen in a movie, to where he starts using the word Mexican to describe all his his illegal employees, but no, uh, no not Mexican, uh, me- Mexican. Mexican. He goes to the next level. They're all Mexican. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the farther you get north of the Mexican border, I guess the the more letters you use lose in the actual pronunciation of it. But yeah, they go with Mexican, I guess, to sound exotic. He has a lesser has so many great lines. I... I thought I'd recognize him at first, and it turns out it's an actor by the name of Sam McMurray, who I personally recognize as, I believe he's Clark Griswold's work buddy from <laughs> Christmas Vacation, uh, the one who's, who he's commiserating with about bonuses, I believe. Uh, but, I mean, as as you can't, as much as I would want to disparage a guy that uses the term Jew you down so frivolously, <laughs> he's just so 
callous and he has this that fantastic line uh what what does he say during the parade it's it's a the gift that someone sent us on twitter oh, we'll get to that i have it written down somewhere oh good we'll, we'll get to it <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines in the movie because he's just so callous and he loves his globe bar and again that's the thing we're like even if you're super rich, if you're so rich in a small town that the one thing you have to show off to your camera crew is the fact that you keep bottles of booze in a hollowed out globe. It's just very indicative. There's a little uh, nonverbal scene that I love here where they're interviewing all the Lehmans on the couch in their house. And like, you know, Gladys is sitting up all poised and Becky's sitting there all poised and perfect. And the dad is just slouched down as far as he could possibly get and just not caring. And it's so funny. Like he is so over this pageant shit. And it's really funny. You can just read it on his face. Yeah, he, he does. It's, it's a lot of nonverbal stuff because mostly when he opens his mouth, it's just pure BS. But he has some fun nonverbal moments too. Okay, I think it's time, Mike, that we should meet the pageant judges. Oh boy. <laughs> well, which order do we want to go in here? All right, we'll start with number one, and I will. I'll give you the honor because I know you want to class the show up. But uh, I will say his name is John Doe. He is of no fixed name from no fixed address. He is sort of a uh, creepy little fellow. And Mike, how would you best describe this person to someone who's never seen this movie before? He's a perverted pharmacist. Straight up pedophile. Yeah, so he has this really interesting moment. I mean, first off, another, I think, incredible runner is just how much everyone smokes like chimneys <laughs> here, which again just shows how, I wouldn't say that's like a tenant of white trash, but it really, this is like the most smoking I've seen by a cast of characters since Mad Men, with everyone just <laughs> punishing their bodies, including that group of two fry girls that they keep going back to, the one whose poor baby is being susceptible to all this smoking and drinking. But we see him nervously smoking outside of his, uh, out of sight of his pharmacy, and he tells us, you know, I've never judged a pageant before, and he's, quote, never been around young girls. And he really has to walk that back, but oh, is he going to keep stepping in it? So many damn times over the course of this film when they do the judging questionnaires like let's bring in the young girls for some reason he keeps referring to them as young girls which is not making anything better for him to your point about his name i'm very sure this is a convicted child molester who escaped uh, who escaped any sort of prosecution and changed his name completely and became a pharmacist and he'll probably move on to the next thing after all this we did not see a lower third for him so i can only assume he put on a toupee and moved north of the border where now he's terrorizing people in Saskatchewan. <laughs> okay, so we've had the Japanese family who thinks America is represented by nuclear bombs blowing up their country. We have met the anorexic bulimic girl on her deathbed. We have met the convicted pedophile who's the main judge of the contest. We're not actually up to the offensive stuff yet. Nope, we are just, we are merely leading up to the main course of distaste in this movie. All right, so judge number two is a larger fellow, a large mammal, as John Panette would call him, named Harold Vilmus, who works at the paint store. And Harold is kind of a rough and tumble fellow, but he's not necessarily so interesting. What's more interesting is his brother, Hank. This is basically like if What's Eating Gilbert Grape was... I don't know, put on 200 pounds and lost about 200 IQ points. Because <laughs> that's basically the situation, right, is that their mom's dead. Apparently she's, like, in a freezer since they say, oh, yeah, we're going to use the money to get a headstone for mom and actually move her out to the cemetery. But there are these two brothers who run this hardware store, and Harold, played by Mike Machane, who I was a huge fan of back in the Whose Line Is It Anyway days, uh, is the more reasonable one. And Will Sasso plays, for lack of a better term... 
and they they use this term i do not frivolously he plays the retard i'm just gonna put that on loop you saying that over and over in the stinger <laughs> yeah we're gonna as soon as, yeah i mean please use that anytime uh i might you know cross a line with you just make sure now now you have that blackmail over me now this is an interesting chronology for will sasso uh i know you're a diehard snl fan mario and i don't know how much you dabbled into mad tv i was a pretty big mad tv stan back in the day and i gotta say will sasso was one of the most talented comedians to come out of that i've never actually seen an episode of mad tv i only know him from this he was known for his impressions of Kenny Rogers and of uh, Randy Newman. I mean, granted, they weren't really impressions. They were more so caricatures. Think of him as sort of like, if you couldn't get Chris Farley for this role, who can we get in a similar complexion and sense of mannerisms? Okay, Will Sasso it uh, is. Yeah, Chris Farley's dead. This guy's fat. Get him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, I think he does a good job with it to the point where he apparently says that people uh, approached him after the film and actually believed he was mentally disabled uh and so he's able to get away with things like sitting through the interview with no pants but i i love just the the fact that the, the interview gets completely derailed by hank slapping him around and it gets to the point where we see the relationship basically in a snow globe where harold is wildly swinging a show shovel a snow shovel to crack his brother over the head and probably mentally impair him even more yeah so Hank, again, I won't use the R word, as Mike did to callously. I will say that uh, Hank is a paint-huffing tard. And uh, his first word... Don't abbreviate it. That's even worse. No, that's better. That's not the R word. It's better. So so Hank's first word when he sees the camera is, are we on cops? Which, again, covering the old joke that everyone thinks they're on cops. Not only is he huffing paint, at one point he runs face-first into a glass window, which is a fantastic stunt. I don't know how he didn't hurt himself. And then there's the other line where where we learn a little more about Hank later when, when Harold says, we're happier right now than the day Hanky was acquitted. So Hanky has spent some time in the pen as well. So he has not had a happy life. And, you know, he's unfortunately lost a lot of people around him. They lost He lost his mother. As his brother will allude to later, the babysitter's dead, which apparently was a big deal <laughs> in their household. Yeah, okay. So we have Judges 1 and 2, Harold Vilmus and John Doe. And the third one is the one that people don't tend to remember because she is a Lester Lehman's uh, secretary, and she never says a word. Her name is Jean Kangas, never says a damn word the entire movie. What some people might not know is that is Lana Williams, the screenwriter, who, again, former beauty pageant winner. She really uglied herself up for this role because she looks all mousy and downy and dowdy. But, yeah, that's her making a cameo, although she never says a word the entire movie. She's basically just there so the Lehmans can stack votes in the ju in the jury. Well, and so there's a story behind that as well. Yet another sign of the Cold War that was happening between the director and the writer of this film was that Williams initially wrote that Candy Striper role in the hospital, the one that's bad with the needles, for herself. But the director and producer spoke up saying, you're too old for that role. And so they said... We can get you in the film, but we don't want to schlep out a lot of cast for you to say lines. So we're going to make you this character that has no lines. Uh. Now, I think there is some interesting thematic elements in that, in that she is the lone female representative on the panel. Yet the two men on the panel have more, 
have more weight to throw around when it comes to which young girl ultimately ends up winning. There is some irony in that the lone female representative has no voice literally in which of these girls ends up winning the title. But yeah, that's the story behind the writer sort of making a sheepish cameo in the movie. Huh. I actually did not know that. That Okay, I can see the uh, the sad uh, career of Lana Williams being constantly just belittled and bashed until she gives up on Hollywood. Yeah, essentially she feels like, uh, you know, the director is John Doe and the producers are the Vilma's brothers. <laughs> and so she's just the poor set upon third judge who has to sit there and be like, yep, I'm part of this creative team that determined this product, even if I didn't get exactly what I wanted. Even though it's my goddamn script. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, again, speaking of the madman tendencies, uh, I mean, Lester really does feel like he sort of like Encino manned from the 1960s <laughs> between the way he approaches things, the, colorful terms he uses and the way he treats his secretary okay now uh, sad sad to say i gotta skip through a whole chunk of this movie because we have to keep this podcast under two hours so i'm just gonna jump ahead about 30 minutes here and we're just gonna say lots of bad stuff happens in this town and there are attempts on amber's life for daring to enter the pageant and her trailer is blown up and at one point her mother is ex not only caught in an explosion but a beer can fuses to her hand I got to say that that's while it's a bit gnarly to see the burn wounds on her arm. She's extremely lucky that that was all it was. I mean, I don't know exactly what the explosion was. We only see from that interesting. I mean, I guess was this the first found footage film <laughs> where we saw these two dudes shredding on guitar when the explosion goes up. But she's pretty much unharmed, even though, as Loretta says, she flew through the yard like a goddamn lawn dart. Like the rest of her body's totally fine. Yeah. So anyway, let's jump up ahead to the pageant because all the interesting stuff I want to talk about is coming up in the pageant here. So we'll get up to the days leading up to the pageant. You know, everyone, it's the biggest deal in town. It's getting super competitive. And and we get to the judges' interviews, which is, uh, this is the scene that you talked about earlier. It's basically the three judges asking all the young girls questions while John Doe is openly leering at them. Like he's like straining forward to get closer to them as he's talking to them. And meanwhile, behind him, Hank, the R word, as Mike would say, has his pants completely open, and he's basically masturbating during the judge interviews, which you know John Doe wanted to do instead. I can't, is this rated PG-13? I can't remember, because I feel like otherwise, do you think they would have shown it? I mean, shown him actually whipping it out? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's... That's NC-17, my friend. Uh, I mean, I guess, yeah, comedy... I mean, not like actually doing the motion, but just like full frontal Will Sasso. I mean, I don't know if he would have signed on to it, but... Yeah, they really do a lot of, uh, thank God for Lana Williams sitting in front of him. But there's a lot of fun little moments in here as well between, you know, if you could be any tree in the woods, what would it be? Leslie says green. Molly says bonsai. And Becky goes with the typical pageant answer of like, I want, you know, good roots, a strong Christian trunk. And what was it? Long leafy branches to provide shade for handicapped kids on a hot summer day. <laughs> and, and we get to see the creativity of Gladys's settled sabotage with the question that Amber gets. Yeah, the yeah. So all the questions are just slam dunk softball questions, including the one where John Doe just asks, "Do you like to swim?" <laughs> yeah, though I don't know if Lisa Pasek, considering she just talks about how she met Greg Louganis at one of her drag queens <laughs> brother shows, and then just laughs for a solid thirty seconds straight. Yeah. So anyway, they all get easy questions, and then you find out this pageant is, of course, stacked against Amber because the Lehmans are running it. That. Amber does not get a softball question. She is asked to name all U.S. states in alphabetical order, and or name and spell all U.S. states in alphabetical order, which is significantly harder than who would you pick to be president. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially when one of the choices is your own mother. Uh, I I love this. I loved Amber's incredulity of like, are you kidding me? And the fact that she does it, and the fact that it all ends with Harold then just doing one simple check on the form is just, oh, that's a fantastic capper. And also the fact that Hank is rooting her on. I think it helps that she has her own cheering section. <laughs> yeah, it's Will Sasso's greatest moment there. Watch him applauding as Amber reels off all 50 states. He is so excited for her. Even though you cannot see him from the waist down, he probably still has his pants off. Yeah, he might be excited in different ways from multiple poles of the body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you said pole. I didn't. Thank you. Yeah, I was referring to geography. All right, so uh, so we got the dress rehearsal here. This is the day before the pageant, and they're all getting ready to go out and go on stage. And the Lehmans have set a death trap for Amber, which we don't know this earlier, that they have a stage light is going to fall down and knock her in the head and kill her because that's what they do. They kill the uh, competition. But as luck would have it, Janelle, the one who likes sign language, this is what you said earlier, she's having a deaf baby. She's so excited she's going to have a deaf baby in the family that she wants to switch with Amber and go first. So the deaf grows out, out there, does her interpretive dance where she spells one of the words again. Which one is it? Numbers. She spells the word numbers. She goes N-U-M-B-E-R-S. And she goes out there and she gets nailed on the head with a lamp. And once again, Amber's life is spared. And we, we get the sense that Janelle has been killed. Yeah, this really is like Final Destination uh, pageant version. I'm also sad that, I mean... Tess could have been fine with it, considering that she has her own story of something impaling her on the head. It might as well be two for two with her. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, we're down to six or seven girls in the pageant, because one of them is... Well, but by the way, one thing that my wife noticed, which again speaks towards the 90s of it all, uh, in this scene, Gladys, I believe, was wearing a blue necklace that looked a lot like the Heart of the Ocean from Titanic. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, her, her husband probably bought a, a, a knockoff down in Mexico. Well, I was going to say, could you imagine, like, Lester could be, like, the Billy Zane character from Titanic, like a descendant of him, right? <laughs> yeah, he could be. It could indeed. That, that's, I think, where we were going here. Yeah, I think that's really the insider. Clearly, Lana Williams is trying to set up this sort of, like, 90s cinematic universe <laughs> where they were going to have a crossover with Brendan Fraser's Mummy franchise. Uh, since Kirsten Dunst is involved, Robin Williams is going to come out with a cgi elephant it's all it, it, would, it would have all been connected it would have been the most incredible thing marvel would have been shaking in its boots okay so moving on from the lana williams cinematic universe now we are at the official high water point of this movie the actual pageant where the seven of mount rose's brightest are competing for the title of miss sarah rose cosmetics i love the fact that by the way uh you know they had janelle be number one and they just took her number out of the pageant entirely they're like <laughs> Uh, we're fine. Well, we could do two through eight. Nobody will really quibble with that. <laughs> All right, so here comes the pageant. And again, if this if this movie has a reputation for being a bad taste classic, here we go. There's at least three or four moments in this pageant that are almost jaw-dropping. And we'll start off with the beginning where they all come out to the theme of this year, which is proud to be American. And they all have a little hat on, which with a little representation of what represents America. And like I said, uh, Molly has the, the mushroom cloud that decimated uh, Hiroshima, which is fun. But that's not my favorite. My favorite is no. my favorite is Leslie Miller, the slutty girl, coming out with a Washington monument on top of her head and visibly giving it a hand job in front of the audience. Yes, and especially her, her boyfriend cat calling her and then cut to a very sweaty looking John Doe. Uh, but I'm surprised that that was your favorite because my favorite was Tess misunderstanding the assignment. Yeah, okay, t explain that one. 
So Tess comes out. Uh, you know, everyone else has, you know, Becky has, I chose Mount Rushmore because to live in a country where you can take an ugly old mountain and put faces on it, faces of great Americans who did so much to make our country super great. That makes me proud to be an American. You know, Amber has like just a map of the country. Kind of a comp out, Amber, but whatever. Tess comes out with a ball of string on her head and says, my uncle builds the world's largest ball of twine in Bundy, Minnesota. It makes me proud to be American. I kind of misunderstood the assignment <laughs> and then cut to the ball and hat just falling off her head. It is. <laughs> that's one of those lines that my wife also has sort of stuck in her uh, gray matter. I'm surprised though, Mario, that you sort of breeze past the theme. How do you feel like this compares to other past illuminating themes like by American USA is a okay. And especially a mayor. I can. Uh, all I will say is whoever wrote this movie, AKA Lana Williams clearly grew up in the Midwest. Yeah, A Mare I Can, I think, might be my favorite, just because as a fan of puns and deconstructing languages, it makes no sense, but all sense <laughs> at the same time. Okay, so some other hats here. i got to give a shout-out to Lisa. This is uh, uh, Brittany Murphy, who has a Statue of Liberty on top of her head, which, if you look close, is clearly just a Barbie wrapped up in, saran in uh, what is it? Uh, Tinfoil. Tinfoil, yeah. And she, but she's, and she's holding a candle that's supposed to be the torch, and you can see that Lisa attempts to light the torch, and then starts getting into a laughing fit because she can't light it. I don't know if that was, you know, scripted or not. We actually don't know if it lit or anything. Knowing Becky's machinations, if she would be engulfed in a flame ball or something. But yeah, that was these. These are all fantastic little props that do just a great job of introducing the audience to the calamity that is the Sarah Rose Cosmetics Mount Rose American Team Princess pageant. Can I give my little nerdy Minnesota trivia of the day here? Oh, please do. All right. So the world's biggest twine ball, the one talked about in Weird Al's historic song, the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. Yes. It is in Darwin, Minnesota. And I have been there. I have pictures of it. In this movie, Tess alleges that her uncle built that twine ball, but she says Bundy, Minnesota. And Bundy, my friends, is not Darwin. That is incorrect. Cut to a billboard outside Bundy, Minnesota that says, home to the world's largest bile of twine, and the mayor complaining, like, the damn Shriners won't take the billboard down, even though this is not the town. Take down the damn Frida sign. All right, so... Uh, backstage, there's some drama because Amber's tap costume has disappeared. Becky has probably shredded it or stolen it, and they get in a little fight. But, you know, enough about that. Let's go back on the stage because— Well, well, well hold on. I, I do want to point out one another great Iris line where Iris breaks up the calf fight, and Amber goes, I hate her, and, and Iris goes, I know, I know, we all do. Let's go. Come on. All right, so now we're going to go for the first of the holy shit moments in this pageant that you cannot believe they did in a movie. And this is Mary Johansson, the anorexic girl, like I said, my favorite scene in the movie, giving her farewell performance. Doing in her encore lip sync to Don't Cry Out Loud, wearing a big, curly, brunette wig. I don't know if she wore that last year, if she wore this this year to just cover up her pallid complexion, but oh my god, it's brilliant. Yeah, I, I always have fond memories of the first time I saw this scene. And just laughing, because I could not believe the gall of whoever wrote that scene and whoever approved it and put it in the movie, that the dying anorexic girl out there giving her farewell performance, lip-syncing horribly, I might add, not even close to the right words, her wig is three times too big for her head, it's clearly a wig, 
And not only that, but she can't dance. She doesn't have the strength to walk around the stage and dance. So she is in a goddamn wheelchair. Her nurse has to spin her around to do the spin in the middle of the song. And at one point, she's supposed to rush across the stage. And it involves the nurse running, pushing the wheelchair from one edge of the stage to the other. So that, my friends, is comedy. It's such a great image, and especially when she makes use of the wheelchair, like, uh, you know, during the lyrics, fly high and proud, she very meekly flaps her arms. But I think my favorite part is when the lyrics go, you know, and if you should fall. And clearly in her usual routine, she mimes, like, fainting on the stage. But here she just sort of, like, half-heartedly pretends to collapse in her wheelchair. <laughs> I love it, though, because I'm assuming that RuPaul watched this movie, and that is how he came up with the hit elimination concept for RuPaul's Drag Race to lip sync for your life, because she literally is doing it here. Oh, I didn't realize. All right, so shout out to RuPaul, and again, shout out to Lana Williams if you ever hear this. I cannot believe you got this scene into a movie, so, you know, more power to you. Can I talk for a brief second about my own history with pageants? Because I don't, I don't think I've actually ever told anyone about this who, who I podcasted with, but... Mario, I have a bit of a pageant history myself. Were you anorexic? Um, I mean, I this was in college where I was severely underweight and malnourished, so I wouldn't say I was on that level. But I competed in a man pageant, a mangent, <laughs> uh, in my college. I went to a school called Muhlenberg College, and every year they did a pageant called Mr. Muhlenberg, where guys would compete uh, in talent, they would do swimsuit, and we'd do like a question and answer and a formal. And I guess if I could compare myself in terms of attitude to one of the contestants in this movie, it would absolutely be Lisa Swenson. I did not give two shits about this. <laughs> uh, I had so many other things going on at the same time that I really put everything together with like two days left until the competition. And you know what, Mario? I won Mr. Mueller. <laughs> wow. So you were the Becky Lehman of your school. I, I didn't. I was an unintentional Becky Lehman. Uh, I will not say I was as poised and composed and as, you know, focused on the competition as my uh, my competitor standing in line. But actually, on the note of Mary's performance here, the talent that I did was that I also lip synced. Uh, I lip synced to Lady Gaga's Bad Romance while sort of in drag. I wore like white pants a white skirt, like white under armor. I basically got, grabbed everything uh, both in my closet and in my fraternity house that was white, threw it on, put a chef's hat on for some reason, and did the dance to bad romance. <laughs> and uh, apparently the judges were bowled over from that, uh, especially, I don't know, I don't know if there were John Doe's in the crowd who were especially bowled <laughs> over, had some pins standing there, but I was granted the win very surprisingly so did you get to do a farewell performance the next year from your wheelchair <laughs> yes uh i got to lip sync to bad romance from a wheelchair wearing a meat dress in honor of lady gaga <laughs> uh no the i mean the other things that i did was the swimsuit competition i don't think i actually wore a swimsuit uh i wore like a little pair of booty shorts <laughs> that could sort of be a swimsuit and i uh, danced to the austin powers theme song for some reason, maybe I had uh, some nice Mindy Sterling on the braid and I printed black and white photos out of my library printer that day. I put the Union Jack on my crotch and I put a picture of the queen on my ass and I just danced up and down the aisles, shaking what my mama gave me, including in front of the judges. I was kissing them on the cheeks and giving them lap <laughs> dances. Uh, and then for my formal attire, I decided to just 
wear a normal outfit and then tie a bunch of ties onto myself. <laughs> so I wore about 50 different ties. And the young woman who escorted me down the aisle during the uh, the formal portion that ended up winning me Mr. Muhlenberg, I walked down the aisle with her about four years later when I married her. Wow. That's not where I was expecting that story to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the that's the how I met your mother story. Wow. Essentially. So you met a girl doing that. I was gonna say the number of John Doe's that had you on as a centerfold on their wall after that Union Jack performance, you could not have measured that. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to measure anything with those John <laughs> Doe's, but yeah, no, it's just... I mean, I didn't meet my wife then. She was a friend of mine. We'd been doing improv together, but I wanted someone to escort me as I did my my formal wear. Uh, so I ended up doing so. And yeah, I did not expect to win. I ended up winning. I was stunned. Uh, and frankly, it might be one of the biggest accomplishments of my life so far. So I, I never thought I would be able to sympathize with this type of movie in any way, shape or form. But I suppose I've got a little bit of blood in common with it, Mario. I have no idea how to transition from that. You've stumped me. <laughs> <laughs> we can just end it right here, right? You're under an hour and a half. That's what you want. We'll just cut off half the movie. All right. So, so anyway, Mike Bloom was a pageant winner, and meanwhile, back in Mount Rose, <laughs> we're we're doing the uh, physical fitness number, and I'm just gonna skim through this because this talent, this podcast is way too long. This was very going back to Waiting for Guffin just because it's one of my favorite movies. It's very stool boom, except it's stepladder boom where they're dancing to uh, Gloria Stefan's conga, except poor Hank, the uh, the mentally challenged hardware worker, painted the blue on the stepladder super soon. So the big physical comedy of this is that they keep the choreography involves them rubbing themselves all over these steps and they get covered in blue paint by the end of it. They blew themselves by the end of it. And it wasn't just John Doe in his seat. I was going to say the physical comedy you say is the paint. I'm saying the physical comedy is the, the talent or the uh, physical fitness portion ends and it's quiet. And John Doe immediately leaps to his feet and applauds as loudly as he can way louder than anybody else in the crowd. I cannot believe I missed this character the first couple of <laughs> times. Maybe it's because there was so much other stimuli going on that he was just in my blinders, but my God, he is such a key portion of this movie. So many throws go to him, especially during this pageant, considering it concerns the young girls. Yeah, I was going to say, usually when I go through a movie and I take notes, I usually get about four pages of notes. For this one, I did six because there's so many little details and references yeah. that I wanted to write down that we haven't even mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> Just little stuff. Yeah, they're, they're, this is an, it's an instantly quotable movie. And that's why, yeah, mine is about seven, about six and a half, because there are just so many damn good lines. This might be for my money, one of the most well-written comedies ever. Cause it's so, even though you might make an argument against it, I feel like it's so tight and there are so many just great lines that are all character driven and funny as hell. So I just had to basically write down the entire script while I was taking notes. Yeah. And this, this will sound weird unless you know me, but like, I don't get emotional talking about movies much, but like this one almost makes me misty eyed because I, I respect and love the way it's written so much. Like, I'm so excited just that we actually have an episode on it because it's like, to me, it's almost like the perfect comedy movie. And that's why I was always transfixed. I wanted to talk to Lana Williams. I wanted to get inside her head because someone has to be really funny to write a movie this good. So, like, like I totally understand that this is, it's almost like the perfect comedy movie, just the way it's written. And because, you know, there's never been a sequel or any sort of adaptation of it, it's just this really nice relic. It's a recipe that was made really well one time, but nobody really tried it at the base sale, especially compared to all the bars going around from all the other moms. And so the recipe was put on the shelf, but man, 
once you sample it, you'll always remember it. And this is just, it's a delicious movie. It really is. Yeah, it really is. And speaking of delicious, we haven't got to the talent portion with Becky Lehman yet. Yes, I was going to say, I thought you were talking about uh, Shannon's Soylent Green performance, speaking of delicious. Yeah, see, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff, and I'm really doing that for the listeners so they don't get bored, but there's so many little details and talents here that are just fun to watch. Like, there's a dramatic reading of Soylent Green one of the girls does. There's With a with a giant silk scarf she has tied onto her neck. <laughs> yes, and then Molly, the Japanese girl, once again does the line dance like a Krint Brack, like her dad said at the start of the movie. Yes, uh, what 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 he got that I don't got as I, how I am like without accent, doing that line reading exactly. We also have a uh, Tess didn't know what she was doing for her talent. She settled upon just doing a bunch of stupid pet tricks or stupid human tricks of dog howls. Yes, dog howls. Leslie, the cheerleader, does a cheerleading routine, which was preceded immediately by a scene where Amber gives an interview, and you see Leslie and her boyfriend basically doing it on the mat right behind her. So <laughs> Leslie's still getting action as the performance is going on. Although this leads it up to Becky Lehman. And like uh, I said, I, I said it earlier with Mary Johansson, the wheelchair girl, giving her for a farewell performance. I called it a holy shit moment. Here we go. This one may even top that. Becky giving her talent in front of the entire town of Mount Rose. I mean, this is an emphasis on the holy in terms of holy shit, right? Yeah. This is, uh, I believe Denise, Denise Richards said in a statement after the fact that you know, when you bring in featured extras, especially if they're townies and, and locals, you know, I, I've been able to, to be an extra in a couple of films. Like, they, they don't usually tell you exactly what's going on in the scene. So you'd have to assume that they'd have to react naturally to what was happening. And they didn't know what was coming. <laughs> and the reaction was to the point where apparently several featured extras walked off the set because they were that offended by what they just witnessed. Okay, I will paint a picture. I will I will take the honors on this one. That yeah, Please paint a shroud of Torin in terms of descriptives. Becky throughout this whole movie has painted herself as the perfect little Christian girl. She loves Jesus. Her town is, you know, the most uh, pious place ever. Her mother's prayers can end world or can can lead to world peace. So she's the most Christian person ever. And she's going to prove it here in her talent performance where she is sitting alone on stage. And she starts singing the old, uh, what is it, Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons? Yeah, can't, can't take my eyes yeah, off of you. Can't yeah. take my eyes off of you. You're just too good to be true. You know. except, except she's sort of like, like Harold Hill speak sings it. She's like, you're just too good to be true. Uh, and I love her also, like the prelude being, you know what? The rumors are true. I do have a special fella in my life. And it's even funnier with the reveal that happens. Yeah, and she starts almost getting a little sexual with it. Like, you get the sense she's kind of got a crush on this guy, and they're going to do it. And and then the reveal comes that she's singing about Jesus. And that would be funny enough. She's singing a love song about her lust for Jesus. But then she brings Jesus out to sing it to him. And, uh, Mike, how would you describe the visual of Jesus here? Imagine a CPR dummy had a little black sheep cousin of the family. Now put him in a bad wig and beard, draw abs on him, <laughs> put him in a bedazzled light blue shroud with some gold trimming and put him up on a cross with wheels on it. That is Becky Lehman's performance. It gets shoved out onto stage and she begins to dance with him. Yeah, she starts slow dancing with Jesus on the crucifix. 
and they start twirling around the stage and she's so happy and delighted and it's the stupidest looking prop and like you're like oh my god i cannot believe they're doing this in a movie there's literally jesus crucified up on a cross the most holy symbol of the uh Christian church or Christian religion. I'm not sure exactly what would be the overarching term, but yeah, it's this is how she proves that she is the most pious religious girl in the land. She slow dance and grinds with Jesus. And not only that, there's one point where she pulls his arms off the cross to wrap her in a deep hug to be like, you know what? I can take a break from suffering for all the man's sins, baby, because I just got to hug you real tight, girl. <laughs> But I think the best image might come from the way she ends, yes. where she she bears the cross <laughs> with Jesus on it and shuffles off to Buffalo off the stage. Yeah, that is her homage to Jesus, how Jesus once suffered and had to carry the cross on the way to being impaled, that she will support him and carry him on the cross, much like he carried the cross himself. She literally puts him on her back and slow walks off the stage like the guy in ACDC. See, and this, I feel like, is a, a big moment that I could understand would be pretty tasteless at the time. Like, I know there were some underground black comedies that were doing these type of risque things, but the one of the reasons why Drop Dead Gorgeous failed as well is because, you know, a New Line had bought it and was trying to market it like, you know, a regular mainstream comedy. You were talking about the trailers beforehand, and this was way out of line even for that time. <laughs> this would be fine in an indie movie, but not in a regular studio release. They've done much worse. They've done like that Hamlet 2 movie, you know, 10 years after the fact where Jesus was a main character. They've been doing, basically the 2000s have been all about sacrilegious elements in pop culture. But this, I feel like this really was a big indicator that this was ahead of its times in terms of its tone, because I can understand why this wouldn't fly in 1999. I have always just loved the thought process behind her dancing with Jesus on the cross. You know that her and her mom had to come up with that. Like, <laughs> I just love the fact that this was approved. And this was decided to be a good idea by the most Christian family in town, that they would prove their love for Jesus by grinding with him, basically. <laughs> just <laughs> Well, it reminds me a bit of when uh, Cartman on South Park creates a number one faith-based album, right? When he basically just takes all these love songs and replaces Baby with Jesus. It's a, Again, we're talking about full circle things. Uh, some people feel love for certain higher powers. And again, uh, you know, I, I have no personal problem with people's belief systems in that regard to the point where they regard them with a, a physical and a sentimental <laughs> love. It's just interesting seeing that represented in mannequin form on the stage. <laughs> and then I love the at the end or the end of her performance, no one really knows how to react. And John Doe, of all people, is sitting there looking stunned that even John Doe, the pedo in the movie, is like, that was kind of tasteless. <laughs> Well, he's like, oh, there's too many distractions on that stage, <laughs> yeah. you know? Too much shirtless man, not enough girl. Yeah, get that guy on the cross out of there. Get him out of here. He's had his time. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that with that, that's the end of the pageant. Amber's going to do a little tap dance. I don't want to spend any time on that. But Amber is clearly the best person in the performance, and she has survived all obstacles and all odds. She's made it to the end. She has won the pageant. But, of course, as everyone knows, the rich family always wins. Uh, now you see, once again, Dr. Jones, there's nothing you possess which I cannot take away. They go full belloc on her, and the Lehmans have stacked the performance, and Becky Lehman wins Mount Rose Miss Teen pageant. Yes, uh, and one of these lines, again, another one of my wife's gray matter quotes, uh, she constantly sings, here she is, our Mount Rose American teen princess. Just, 
out of nowhere. But I do love that the prize is second runner up gets a $50 scholarship to the Votech of your choice, which again is like speaks to a super, you know, low rent prize that they get basically get to choose the $50 off the vocational school of your choice. First runner up gets $75 and Becky Lehman sort of gets like a money out of her own dad's pockets given back to her. Cause I believe the prize is entirely sponsored by Lehman furniture, which is another reason why this entire thing was set up. Right. Oh yeah. Then this is my favorite part of the reveal that Becky wins. She gets her dad's money. Like we all knew she would. And the very first thing her mom does Gladys, you know what she does? She reaches over and rips the tiara off of Mary Johansson, the, the anorexic girl and tears the sash off her body. And poor Mary is kicked to the curb and left for dead. Uh, And it's so interesting how, I mean, it's also interesting how Gladys had a segment dedicated to herself during the awards as well. Cause I don't think it was like an anniversary of her winning. She just came out to basically be like, yup, that was me. Remember when I won and now my daughter's competing. Oh, aren't I glorious. And it's just, it's such fantastic ham-handed self-servicing hosting uh that it's it just it's so delightful to watch okay and here's the interesting thing about this movie and we talked earlier about how the pacing of it is kind of wrong kind of the, the way they set up the script the movie's over the pageant's over becky has won amber lost just like you knew it would happen there's still 25 minutes left in this movie I would assume that they just go to New York and they visit Lisa's brother, uh, who she has a fantastic final moment of her storyline where her dad's pissed off because at a moment, uh, you know, Amber's since Amber's tap costume is gone, she has no costume to go on stage with. And as Leslie says, and she checked with beforehand with the judges, you can't go on stage naked. And Lisa basically throws in the towel and says, like, I don't care about this. You take my outfit. And her dad's like, I hope you're proud of you. I hope you're proud of your uh, yourself. Your brother would never do this. And she just yells, you know what? Peter's gay! Gay! And she storms off, and the dad just goes, what? <laughs> it's just like, it's, I, I think Lisa might be one of my favorite characters, just with how earnest she is, and how great Brittany Murphy is, and this is just a fantastic way to sign off on what honestly might be the most reasonable character in the film. So, after the pageant, we get the uh, great asterisk at the end of the movie, the coda, if you will, where the victory parade And this is one of the most iconic scenes in the movie, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, the swan scene. And I will set it up for people that... It's a a swan song, literally. Yes, this is literally a swan song that, because their beloved daughter has won the pageant, the Lehmans have put together a victory parade, and the dad has gone down to Mexico to bring back this giant swan float that his daughter can parade through the town... Although there's a great line here again. <laughs> okay, you said this earlier, you mentioned this earlier. The dad turns to the camera on the day of the parade and says, beautiful as a whore's ass today, huh, boys? <laughs> and then he talks about how he got this float from Mexico, from his mini Mexican workers, and he's like, I always offer to pay them off in tacos. They love that. <laughs> you, It's totally one of those things where, like, they all laugh and, and, you know, agree with him, and then they speak under their breath in Spanish about how much of an asshole he is. Yes. And, I mean, there's a non-zero tension that they, like, sabotage this float, right? Yeah, because what happens is Becky's complaining this float that she has to go on in the parade smells like gasoline. She doesn't want to go up there. The mom's like, you know, your dad paid so much money in Mexico for that. You, you get your ass up there and smile, and she goes up and... And she is foreshadowing the fact that this this float smells like gas and the float is about to be lit on fire and bad things are going to happen to Becky Lehman. But like you said, the Mexicans may have indeed sabotaged it. 
it's so interesting. There's so many fun elements of this parade that also scream the weirdness of Mount Rose, considering that the shots that we see are of what? There's like a marching band, some very tepid Bichuan twirlers, people just playing inflatable musical instruments, uh, a couple of goat carts made out to be tanks, and then a goat. <laughs> just someone walking a goat down the parade route. But one person is unfortunately missing out. And I, you talked about the physical comedy of Will Sasso before, but one of the images that does stick with me as well is poor Hank with one of his overalls caught in the car door, just screaming for help and also uh, able to trap one kid in his web to grab his cotton candy. Yeah, just a fantastic visual that the, uh, let's call him the retard, as Mike would say so callously, is ends up trapped in the car door, misses the entire parade, and there's a little disclaimer at one point where the camera crew is not allowed to go up and interfere. It's part of their policy. <laughs> so they have to film just poor Hank hanging there, unable to get out of the car door. Oh, <laughs> uh, I love it. And this was also like... I feel like this was also peak overall time, not just from a Midwestern perspective, but this is when people would wear overalls all the time. I know I rocked a pair of alls myself, if we're going to use that sort of colloquialism. And I definitely rocked those a couple times of only doing one overall strap for one for some reason. I guess this was at the time where like wearing a backpack on one shoulder was really cool. Like asymmetry was really in in the 90s, Mario. You couldn't be the same on both sides. That was too tacky. <laughs> yes. Okay, so yeah, bad things are about to befall Becky Lehman, who has won the pageant and is the queen of the town. And in one of the more dark endings of a movie you'll ever see, the float with her on it explodes. It's 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 a, the scene with Amber and Leslie kind of sitting in a car talking, and you see Becky on the swan in the back, and all of a sudden she just explodes in the biggest kaboom ever. And just like that, the hero of our pageant, the Miss Sarah Rose, Mount Rose, explodes in a fireball, to which her mother, Gladys, runs out there. And this is one of my favorite lines in the movie. You have to listen for it. Oh, my baby, my baby, the swan ate my baby. Swan ate my baby. It's basically the dingo ate my baby, but for a new era and country. It's that hip. Uh, I do love as well, it's a small detail that you might not pick up the first few times you watch it, but after the explosion, of course, everyone runs over, get Amber ADR being like, oh, crap, crap, crap. There's this one guy, I don't know if it's the mayor or not, but he stays on the bandstand and points and applauds at the explosion. Uh, essentially, I don't know if he thinks it's all part of the show or if he's trying to behave like I did at the live know-it-alls when Malcolm got buttered out of Survivor Game Changers and just loves the chaos of it all. But next time you want to take a look out for that one guy who's the lone exception in reactions <laughs> to this horrible, horrible incident. Yeah, so Becky has been killed. The Lehmans basically have been, their whole family has been devastated. Gladys is dragged off because she threatens to kill Amber. It's a wonderful moment. But it does lead to the sentence in this movie that I think sums up the entire spirit of Drop Dead Gorgeous. And I will quote this one. We cut immediately the next day to Becky Lehman's funeral, where she has been killed by the giant swan from Mexico blew up underneath her. And the priest somehow turns this into a patriotic, jingoistic treatise on America, mm -hmm. where the priest literally says, this is his eulogy for the dead Lehman girl. And that's why, dear Lord, it's with such great sorrow we turn over to you this young woman whose dream of riding on a giant swan has brought about her untimely death. Maybe this is your way of telling us to buy American. And the audience, you know, <laughs> politely applauds because they agree. This is God's <laughs> message by American. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess by American part two will be the theme. Actually, I would say it would be the theme of the next Miss uh, Sarah Rose Cosmetics, Mount Rose American team princess. But 
No, it's uh, because it's been discontinued. I guess this was the last theme. Otherwise, it would it would have been a great one to renew. If Survivor can renew themes, why can't pageants? <laughs> yeah. Although I will say there's a great throwaway line. We're, I'm just going to really cut through the last part of this movie because we're really late. But that where they go to the state competition and Amber will introduce herself. Oh, I'm uh, Miss Mount Rose. I'm the teen princess. And the pageant leader, Noah, Mo Gaffney, says, Mount Rose, funny. You don't look dead. <laughs> uh, I do really enjoy. I know Nora Dunn and Mo Gaffney make very brief appearances. But I know you and I are both big SNL fans. We always love when SNL alumni pop up. Nora Dunn was part of one of my probably my favorite era of SNL ever, that late 80s, early 90s. So it's always nice to see her get work. But I feel like you could do an entire separate movie. If there was a sequel to Drop Dead Gorgeous about states, you could do an entire movie about them. Because they – they're <laughs> – decreasing levels of sobriety over the course of like 10 minutes that they're at States is really fun and super interesting. Granted, uh, it's interesting that they're the ones that ironically do not, do not end up puking the most by the end of States. Okay. Yeah. We'll just sum this up for people who haven't seen it, that Amber has won her, her city competition. She moves on to state. She goes to this state, uh, state competition for Sarah Rose. It's held at the airport, Howard Johnson, uh, Loretta, that's uh, Alice and Janney comes with her. She only wants to go there to hook up with as many guys as she can near the airport. She's very excited. She's going to get laid. And what happens at the state competition is Amber is totally outmatched. Everyone is way better than her. She's just a little trailer park girl from trailer park town. But as luck would be ha as luck would have it, they happen to have a shellfish buffet that day. Every other girl in the pageant gets sick because Amber doesn't eat shellfish. They all puke, and Amber somehow advances to nationals by default. Yeah, and they play the uh, 2001 music, right? As we just see some beautifully grotesque imagery of a bunch of young women puking their brains out all over, you know, uh, ascending balconies that go into this main square. It truly is a horror in so many ways. And it's a strange way, and this is not, it's not even the ending ending of the movie, but... It's super artistic. I guess the documentarians were like, let's do a fun way to, you know, uh, make the most. We went to film school. Let's put our student loans where our mouth is with this one. Uh, and maybe they also wanted to honor the poor sound guy that may have died from salmonella dysentery from all this. I got to give a shout out here to the quote. At one point after the uh, puke-ageddon where all the beauty pageant queens puke up everything, they interview a sound guy for the news that night. And his quote here is great. He's like, fucking beauty queens blowing chunks everywhere i've never seen anything like it before and i live in la <laughs> so there you go shout out to the sound guy and i also love how the two women on the board once they sober up a bit to declare once again Am amber benefiting on that aforementioned luck has abdicated the winner of states as well because she does not eat any shellfish because they carry around their houses on their back uh but they basically they feel like it's a conspiracy job maybe it's because they thought that you know, uh, Becky got blown up because it was a hit job from Mexico. Maybe one of the rival states have gotten to Minnesota and sabotaged seafood by Antoine. Yeah, the, the the line that gets me right there is Nora Dunn thinks that one of the other states may have sabotaged the seafood. And she especially fingers that bitch from Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Amber somehow backs into being the state champion and then she goes to nationals and... This is the end of the movie. Like I said, it's about 15 minutes too long. It goes past its climax. But the end of the movie is all the girls from National go down to Alabama in a bus. They get there, and it turns out the Mount Rose 
corporation has gone bankrupt. They have been seized by the IRS for tax evasion. And yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, they 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 they've gone through tax evasion, so they've essentially just been like shut down. And it's a pretty fantastic montage set once again. I don't know if the documentarians just got real artsy in this last part, but it's set slow motion to beautiful dreamer as we see these until now poised prim and proper and energetic young women just going primal on the headquarters they're smashing windows they're taking apart the big sr in front they're essentially inciting their own riot and poor amber atkins just sort of shakes her head and goes back onto the bus yeah and that's really the end of the movie the sarah rose uh Corporation has gone out of business. There's no more teen princess pageant, and there's no winners, no hugging, no learning. Amber goes back to her town as the trailer park girl, and she's not going to escape, and that's the end of the movie. Although, there's a quick little epilogue. I always kind of forget this epilogue, just in case people who haven't seen it in a while. Where, yeah, the, uh, like the Animal House yeah, reference. Yeah, like Animal House, where we see what happened to all the girls, and like Leslie Miller becomes a stripper in like the Philippines or something. Well, yes, yeah, so she becomes a... she gets through beauty school by also being a stripper and there's a nice joke there where that says you know she was last seen in the philippines if you have any tips please call what 1-800-X-Queen uh and poor harold got bit by a, a tick and died so hank is inheriting the hardware store he's looking like his own little statue of liberty running a lawnmower covered in foil uh but he knows he might do a great job he might be a prodigy when it comes to business management uh, Gladys, who we found out a bit earlier, we see her get a, a call from prison. She's sort of a prison bitch now. Uh, her nickname is Cinnamon, uh, but she does compete in a statewide prison beauty contest, and she comes in second. And I think her fury against Mount Rose rises to a boil, so she escapes from prison. And this might be a pretty dark one, considering modern American standards. Uh, has a shootout on top of a grocery store where she accidentally guns down a reporter. Amber takes over, and she becomes a newscaster with Diane Sawyer hair to boot. Though I will also mention, Annette ends up uh, getting the surgery that she needs. No more beer can. She now has a hook. Uh, never once, though, does she declare that she's a monster. As long as she can shotgun a beer, she's just fine. And, of course, the happiest ending of all is Loretta, Alice, and Janney, who announces to, the new, announces to the world over the news that at the airport, Hojo, I got some. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. That I feel like if this was made in the 2010s, that would be a meme-worthy moment for Miss Loretta. She would become internet famous. I just heard a story the other day that Alice and Janney was, she's like, more people recognize me from Drop Dead Gorgeous than any other movie or TV show I've ever done. She's like, people are constantly throwing Loretta lines at me. And she said her all-time favorite story is she was at the airport once, and she heard these teen girls sitting right near her, and they were all quoting Loretta from Drop Dead Gorgeous. She's their favorite character. And so Alice and Janney kind of walks over and says, um, hi, I played Loretta in that movie. And she's like, and they just started screaming. They were so excited they met Loretta in the airport. Yes, I mean, that's the thing you really want to elicit in terms of people in the airport is just having them scream in the middle of a terminal bloody murder <laughs> out of pure excitement. I'm sure that will... That will not yield any consequences whatsoever. <laughs> yes. So anyway, that is our coverage of Drop Dead Gorgeous. I I hope we did it justice because there's so much about this movie that is amazing. Like I said, like Staff Picks was basically born in 1999 or 2000 when I first saw this movie. And I'm like, nobody else. I've never known somebody who's seen this movie before. I'm like, and it's amazing. So I like made it a crusade. This was like my big movie. 
to the point that I actually started getting jealous a couple years later when I'd see other people recommending it on, on the internet. And I'm like, that's my movie. No, that's mine. That's the one that I tell people about. So, like I said, this movie was born, this, this podcast was born that day, and I feel so strongly about this podcast that anybody who likes comedy or wants to see really funny comedy or just wants to own a copy of a movie that's hard to find, just go buy Drop Dead Gorgeous. I've never met somebody who doesn't like this movie. It's so fantastic. It's so edgy. You will not believe some of the stuff they got onto screen. And again, just if, if there's any chance Lana Williams ever hears this, I want to talk to you sometime because I'm dying to meet the person who wrote this movie. Yes, come out of your Unabomber-esque cave and talk to us about your methodology. Do you want to hear a couple of uh, miscellaneous film facts that I found out about this one as well? Do I have a choice? Nope. Uh, so <laughs> Swing there away. There was an alternate—I don't know if you know about this, Mario. There was an alternate ending to Drop Dead Gorgeous. The, is that the one where Hank wins the pageant? No, unfortunately not, though that would be absolutely beautiful and a great statement about the, uh, the status of mental health in our country. Yes, very important. But uh, in the original ending, Gladys— did not go on the shooting spree. Gladys hung herself in prison. Uh, so basically there would be one scene where we just see her feet swinging in a jail cell. And then instead of Gladys being the one doing the shootout, it would actually be Iona Hildebrandt, who, if you remember, was that librarian who also won Mount Rose American Team Princess in 1945. She would have done it because she felt like the, the pageant would have been bastardized at that point. <laughs> and apparently the audience thought that after all of that was one step too far. And so they changed it to the ending they have now. That's where they crossed the line. That at the very end, literally minute like 95 of the 97 minute movie <laughs> is where they ended up crossing the line. And very interestingly, you know, we talk about how this movie does not necessarily have a legacy, at least in the moment because of the way it absolutely bombed. But there is one piece of pop culture that can be accredited to Drop Dead Gorgeous. And this was straight from the words of Gavin Pallone, who is one of the main producers of this film. He basically says, Gilmore Girls wouldn't exist if I had not produced that movie. Ah, okay, good. And it's it's very odd. You you know, it's almost like night and day, the two shows. But Pallone basically said he was inspired by the very odd dynamic of mother-daughter characters in this movie, especially between Amber and Annette that that inspired him to pursue a story about a mother-daughter, a, a unique mother-daughter relationship that he sort of got in cahoots with Amy Sherman Palladino and the rest was history. So it's crazy to think that this movie would inspire Gilmore Girls, but apparently it did. But yeah, I'll, I completely, you know, co-opt and co-sign everything that you say. I think if you are someone who is looking into comedy writing, into either pursuing it or just looking into it as to what makes something funny, just just see if you get like a copy of the script or a transcription of this movie, because it, I mean, it really, you could see, I'm assuming Lana Williams work on the Simpsons really come to life here where there's a joke, at least every like 15 seconds, everything is rooted in character, but everything's rooted in absurdity. It's building out a setting. It's building out an event. There's all these different types of personalities. It goes super dark, but it has this lightness and almost optimism to it sometimes that negates those effects sometimes that you don't realize that there are such dark themes that they're approaching. It's just, I mean, I fell in love with this movie. I have a special movie in my life. Aww. Let me sing about him a bit. Uh, I mean, as someone who loved the Christopher Guest side of mockumentaries, this is right up there 
with me with like your best in shows and you're waiting for Guffman's. It is so freaking well done from every single perspective. You can quibble with the last 25 minutes. I personally don't because, again, I see the thematic implications that come to having your dreams completely dash and that Amber's luck had finally run out for a portion of time where she makes it all the way to Nationals. That's her end goal. And it turns out that, hey, you make it to Oz and Oz has been foreclosed because, you know, uh, there's rats in the basement or something like that in the Emerald City. It's just so fascinating to watch how absurd yet how realistic sometimes this world can be and how hyper competitive it can be i mean murray you and i have also studied reality tv for quite some time and it's interesting between the mockumentary style and the cutthroat competitiveness of it all it does hearken to some of those elements that we see on our tvs every week so i'm so happy i got to reinvestigate this movie and come on and talk with you about it because it'll it's it will always be something that's near and dear to my heart and as i said before it's not only one of the most well-written comedies I've ever seen. It might be up there with just some of my favorite comedy movies of all time. Yeah, and above everything else, there's one other reason people might not, might like this movie, Mike. And what's that? They get to watch lots of young girls. Oh, boy, yeah. There's a certain subset. That's another one, actually. You were speaking about the Alice and Janney stuff. Apparently, uh, the actor who played John Doe says, uh, I think, and I quote, Six times in my life, I've been in a public setting, once in a mall, once in a bakery, each time with a lot of people around. And a teenage girl has turned and yelled, you're the pervert. <laughs> and I put my hands up and say, in a movie, in a movie, finish the sentence. But there's this moment where the whole fucking place turns and it's just like, oh, you're hanging by your balls, kid. That still happens. <laughs> so when people scream when they see him in an airport, it's for a different reason. Yeah, then that's really more of an – actually, no, I think it's more in a lighthearted perspective. But if they don't finish their sentences, that's when TSA really gets involved. And that's how he ended up on the no-fly list for some time. <laughs> Okay, again, I just want to uh, thank you for stopping by and talking about a movie that really is, is very special to me, and I'm, I'm glad you were here to uh, talk about it. Do you want to plug anything? How can people reach you if they want to find you? Yeah, so you can always follow me at a Mike Bloom type. I do have a lot of uh, irons in the fire when it comes to pop culture coverage. Uh, I do a lot of podcasting on the reg when it comes to Survivor, The Amazing Race, RuPaul's Drag Race, a lot for Rob has a podcast, and for Mario Lanza's aforementioned Survivor Historians, which I have been not only so lucky to be a part of for the past several years, but, I mean, Mario, you were the one to really usher me into this activity that I really enjoy probably more than 95% of the activities in the world. So I, I always wanted to thank you for that and for bringing me on to get the chance to shoot the shit about these silly comedies and all that. Uh, we cover SNL as well. We do a monthly SNL in Review podcast on the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. And I'm also a writer for The Hollywood Reporter, for Parade.com, for comic book resources. I write a lot about Star Trek, uh, the big CBS3 shows, Survivor Big Brother, The Amazing Race, Top Chef, and any other miscellaneous things under the sun. Who knows uh, You know, if this is going to be the 20th anniversary of Drop Dead Gorgeous. Maybe if we can coerce Lana Williams <laughs> outside of her soundproof room, maybe we can, uh, we can get some key tidbits from her because – I can't believe this movie is already two decades old. Yeah. And again, the only, well, it's not the only movie. She did one other movie just recently. It's like uh, some boy, some Cub Scout movie. Oh, yes. Uh, Scout, Scout's Guide to the Apocalypse. I yeah. Believe. And those are like the two things on her resume. But this movie is so fantastic. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at StaffPicksPodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. 
And until the next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that need a little more love, and I will try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. As always, Staff Picks is sponsored by St. Paul Pork Products. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Mmm, and I brought your favorites. How nice, Becky. She's anorexic. She's skinny, Amber. Not deaf. <laughs>